How does knowing the story of the Bible help us make sense of our lives? Find out today on the Central Baptist Podcast as Pastor Barton teaches us how the Christian narrative is the story that makes sense of our stories. Uh, The scripture reading today will be from multiple passages. It will be from Genesis chapter 2, verse 15 to 17, Genesis chapter 3, verse 6, as well as Matthew 18, verses 1 to 4. Genesis chapter 2, verses 15 to 17. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now, Genesis chapter 3, verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Matthew 18, verses 1 to 4. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. All right, we are continuing in our series today, and uh, today we're going to be talking about the subject of morality, right and wrong, good and evil. And we begin, I think, at the most basic point where there's absolute agreement that we all believe in right and wrong. Every single one of us would say we believe there are things that people should do, like, you know, you should treat other people with kindness, and we would say we believe there are things that people should not do, like physically assaulting someone. We would go even further, and we would say we don't think that right and wrong are just matters of personal opinion. You know, sometimes people like to say, well, I have my truth, and you have your truth, and they don't have to agree with each other, and, and maybe when it comes to things like your favorite ice cream versus someone else, that's fine to say that, but nobody really believes this, and nobody really lives like this when it comes to issues that are right and wrong. So, for instance, of course, if someone murdered someone else, No one would say to that murderer, if that murderer came out and said, you know what, I just have my truth and you have your truth. No, it's ridiculous. Nobody would accept that. We would judge the murderer and we would say, you're wrong. We absolutely judge you to be wrong. We all believe in right and in wrong. The most obvious way you can see this is just about every social media post that isn't a new baby or what someone had for dinner is somebody commenting on what they think somebody else is either doing right and praising them or what they think someone else is doing or saying or believing is wrong. Social media is one giant test case in all human beliefs, all human beings believe in right and wrong. Or think about the Me Too movement. That, of course, underlying it all is the assumption that there is a right way and there are wrong ways for men to relate to women when it comes in a sexual, when it's in a sexual sense. There is right and there is wrong. We all believe in right and wrong. Now, take all this, back it up. Here, here's what we're doing in this series. In the series, we are beginning with the idea that we've all been born into the gigantic story of this universe. We find ourselves in the middle of this gigantic story. But what is this story? Many different answers have been given. Many different competing and contradictory answers have been given. And so what we're doing in this series is we're looking at specific topics about what it means to be human, what it means to be living within this giant story, and we're, we're comparing and we're contrasting different stories that people tell to make sense of this giant story we find ourselves in. 
And then we're comparing and contrasting those with the Bible story, specifically in Genesis chapters 1 to 3. So today, we're taking this topic of morality, right and wrong, and and unlike all the animals, human beings alone, we have a deep belief in morality, and here's the question that I want us to ask and to ponder on this morning. What story makes the best sense of the fact that as human beings, we all believe in right and wrong. And again, as I've said so many times over the weeks, there's so many stories, of course. We could talk about what, how Hinduism answers this, how Buddhism does, how Islam answers it, how ancient people did. We could go on and on and on. But for the sake of time, what I want to do again today is to just look at the most popular, the most common story that most people here on the West Coast believe, which is what I've been labeling as the secular story of the universe. So what I want to do is look at how the secular story of the universe makes sense of human morality, and then I want to compare and contrast that with how the Christian story, the Judeo-Christian story in Genesis chapters 1 to 3 makes sense of this idea of morality. All right, so you ready for a little bit of deeper thinking this morning? Yeah, not in school, sort of in school, no? Okay, it's not school. We'll, we'll make it really practical, but we're going to go a little bit deeper this morning, all right? So let's take the first half of the message, and here's what I want to do. I want to talk about the secular story of morality. And, and what is the secular story that most people here on the West Coast would believe explains the giant story of the universe? As we've been saying, it's not complicated at all. It would begin either with there is no God, there was nothing, or maybe there is a creator being, but this creator being is not involved in our lives today. So either no God or God is absent from our lives. And then this story would continue to say there was nothing. There was the Big Bang. After billions and billions of years, eventually human life evolved on earth, and here we are today. And now I want to ask the question of, okay, within that story, how does that story make sense of the fact that as human beings, we all believe in right and wrong? In that story, if there's no God or if God is absent, where do we get this? I mean, this is not a small thing to us. This is a major part of what it means to be human. Where do we get this? Within this story, where do we get this sense of morality? Where do we get these beliefs? Who defines what is right and wrong if there's no God or if God is just absent and left the universe not involved in our lives? So let me give you three common answers that secular people give for this. For instance, first of all, some secular people, not all, some secular people say everyone defines morality, what is right and wrong, for themselves. Some secular people say that everyone defines morality for themselves. Now, within the secular story, this is a perfectly logical explanation If there's no God who defines it, it makes perfect sense that we as human beings would make up for ourselves what is right and what is wrong. Really, we become our own gods. Each of us individually become our own gods. We define for ourselves what is right and what is wrong. And this makes perfect sense within the secular story. However, if you think about it for just a moment, I think you'll quickly come to the realization That though someone might say this, no one really believes this or lives like this. It's impossible. No one really believes that each person can define it for themselves because we all believe that there are certain rules, certain rights and wrongs that everyone must follow. Everyone. Like, for instance, you are not allowed to break into my house. That's not just my personal preference and opinion that I made up for myself. We all believe that in society, and if you don't believe it, I don't want you to know where I live. (laughs) We all know it. Moreover, society could not function. If we all followed this thinking, we could not have a society because it would be absolute anarchy if each person decided for themselves what was right and what was wrong. So where do we get this deep sense of morality, of right and wrong? Where does that come from? There was a really famous debate that happened uh, in the middle part of the 20th century, and it involved the most famous atheist of the 20th century named Bertrand Russell, and he was debating a Catholic philosopher and theologian named Frederick Copleston. 
At one point, Copleston asked Russell, the atheist, this question. He said, Dr. Russell, tell me, as an atheist, can you tell the, how do you tell the difference between good and evil? And Russell said, the same way I tell the difference between blue and yellow. Copleston said, but you distinguish blue and yellow on the basis of seeing. How do you tell the difference between good and evil? And Russell pondered for a moment and he said, on the basis of feeling. I determine what is right and what is wrong on the basis of my inward feeling. But what if my feelings are different than your feelings? What if I feel like it's fine for me to shoplift from your store? What if I feel like what you said to me was so insulting, I am justified to punch you in the face? What if Russia feels like it's fine to invade Ukraine? What happens when our feelings contradict someone else's feelings? Does then morality just become a case of who's the most powerful? This is often the case. Might makes right. So if Russia feels like what they're doing is right, it is right, and whoever can enforce it wins the argument about what is right. But nobody really lives like this. None of us really believes that right and wrong are based on our own personal feelings, and none of us really believes that everyone gets to make up their own rules of what's right and wrong. That does fit perfectly within the secular story. It makes logical sense, but we don't accept it. We believe there are certain things that are wrong, and it doesn't matter if somebody feels differently. It's just wrong. We would just say, you're wrong. It doesn't matter if you feel differently or if even a society feels differently. We would say it's wrong. So nobody really believes this or thinks like this, though it often can be something people say. But a moment's reflection most people say, okay, that's not really what I think. And so what will happen then is most secular people will move on to what is probably the most popular answer in the next case. It's not that God defines morality. It's not that individuals per se define morality. Here's the second answer that some, probably even most secular people would say. Some secular people would say morality is defined by each culture. Each culture determines its own morality. Again, we need to say, within the secular story, this once again makes perfect logical sense. If there's no God or if God is absent, then by all means, we kind of collectively, each culture, make up our own rules. We figure it out through maybe voting or maybe through a a dictator or however it's going to happen. Each culture makes up their own definitions of right and wrong, and that's where we get morality. That's one of the answers that has been given. But do you really believe that morality is something that each culture makes up for itself? I don't think you believe that. I don't think anybody actually believes that. How do I know that? Here's the reason. Because we're always judging other cultures to be wrong on certain things. If you're consistent, you'd say, well, this is my culture. I can judge within my culture. But you can never judge another culture because they get to define their own morality. And yet we're always judging the actions of other cultures. The whole world right now is judging the actions of Russia for what it is doing and saying it is wrong. We don't just say, well, that's, that's Russia's culture so they can do what they like. But you might say, but that's because they're attacking another culture. That's the whole problem. Yes, but what if Russia's decided collectively that what they want to do is the right thing for their culture? Now you've got a clash because one culture feels differently than another culture. You can't just live with your own little culture off by yourself, right? But still, let's push a little further. It's not only that we'd say something like about Russia and Ukraine. We would even judge other cultures for what they do within their own culture. And you do it all the time. Think of North Korea. How many times have you heard judgments made that North Korea is committing human rights violations within their own culture with their own people? To be consistent, you should just say, hey, it's their culture, it's their country. We're not going to judge. And yet we're always judging. We're always saying, no, what they're doing to their own people is wrong. They're committing human rights violations. So nobody really lives like this. We all believe there are moral rules that apply to all cultures, even 
if that culture has a dictator that disagrees. Let me really bring this point home. There's a very famous article written uh, by a Yale University law professor. His name's Arthur Leff. Arthur Leff, uh, not a religious person at all, he believed the secular story of the universe that we're talking about here. But he wrote this article because he says, we as secular people have a big, big, big problem. He outlined it to say that we cannot make sense of human morality within this giant secular story of the universe. The secular story of the universe, he said, cannot make sense of human morality. And he wanted to push this home. Why not? Here's how he begins. Track his argument. It's not difficult. I think it'll really make, uh, it's like the penny drops halfway through. First of all, he makes this claim. He says, all moral claims... You tell someone to do right or wrong. All claims about morality are actually authority claims. Okay, what does that mean? All moral claims are actually authority claims. Okay, what does that mean? He get, we'll give two examples. So let's give a positive and a negative. Here's a positive example. If you say to someone, you ought to help an elderly person who's having trouble crossing a road. You ought to do that. If you say that to someone, Arthur Leff would say, in that moment, you are making an authority claim. You're saying to that person, you must do this. You should do this. There is a moral rule that says, if you see an elderly person crossing the road and they're having difficulties and cars are coming, you ought to help that person. You're making an authority claim to tell someone they must do that. Or negatively, here's a negative example. You should not kick your dog. Your cat, maybe, but no, no, not your cat. Just kidding, just kidding. Nobody come after me. You should not kick your dog. If you tell someone that's something you should never do, you should never kick a dog, you are making an authority claim. You are saying to that person, there's a rule, there's a moral rule that you should not do that. Now put that together, here's where the penny drops. This is what he's saying, my paraphrase. Every time you tell people what they should or should not do, you are claiming there is an authority higher than themselves that they must obey. So let that sink in for a moment. Every single time you tell somebody you shouldn't do that or you should do that, and you do this all the time. I mean, half of life is telling people, you're driving, you do it all the time, right? Every time you tell someone they should or should not do something, what you're doing in that moment is you say, you're saying there is an authority higher than you and you must submit and you must obey this authority for this rule, whatever it may be, like don't cut me off in traffic. There's an authority higher than you, an authority higher than me, and you must obey. That's why Arthur Left says all moral claims are authority claims. Okay, now, Left then goes on to say, whenever someone makes an authority claim, you should do this, you should not do this, we should all respond like the kid on a playground who, let's say he's digging a big hole in the side of the playground, and another kid comes up to him and says, hey, you're not allowed to do that. The first kid, remember when you were a kid or you've seen your kids, What's the first kid going to say to the kid who's telling him he shouldn't do it? He's going to say, oh, yeah? What next? Says who? Right? <laughs> you got it. You haven't forgotten your childhood. Says who? Right? Who is this authority that I must obey? You've made an authority claim about what's right and wrong to me. Who is this authority who's so great, who's so powerful, who is over top of me that I must obey? Says who? It's right here that we see what Arthur Left's point is, why the secular story has such a big problem trying to explain this human sense of morality. Because we all believe in right and wrong. And we don't just believe it's a matter of personal opinion. And we don't just believe that it's just culturally defined so cultures can do whatever they want. We don't believe that. And yet what Arthur Leff is trying to say to us is, says who? If you make these claims, says who? Let me give you an example just to really make this clear. Let's say you, drive, you travel to uh, Thailand. Not drive, you travel to Thailand. 
And uh, you see, sadly, some young girls trapped in the sex trade there by powerful men. And your response would be, that is so wrong. In fact, you're so torn up about it, you decide you're going to devote the rest of your life to trying to stop this kind of a thing. Arthur Leff would say to you, okay, but if there's no God, who says it's wrong for those men to do that? And of course, you're going to immediately just react. You're going to say, don't be ridiculous. Of course, we all know that that's wrong. We all agree on that. Come on. But Leff would say, okay, no problems. We're just having a discussion about this. But he would say, realize your outrage at this is based upon your white European cultural background. So who are you to say that your kind of Canadian cultural views of what is right and what is wrong are morally superior to those of Thailand's? You see what he's getting at? If morality is culturally defined, who are you to say your cultural views are morally superior? And that's where immediately now you're realizing, I don't just believe this is cultural. There there are rules. There are right. There is wrong. And it stands above culture. It's not personal opinion. It's not culturally defined. There's higher principles here. You would just say, I don't accept that. It doesn't matter what culture you come from. A girl should never be treated like that. And Arthur Leff would say, okay, says who? Good that you say that, but who says? Where, where is it written? Where, is this great, where does this come from in the universe that a man shouldn't do that? If there is no God, then who is this authority who must be obeyed? So what Leff is trying to say as a Yale University law professor is the secular story simply cannot make sense of this deep core thing that we as human beings all believe that there's right and there's wrong and it doesn't matter what someone's personal feelings are, it doesn't matter their preferences, and it doesn't even matter if a culture is going to accept actions like what can happen in Thailand, it doesn't matter. But Leff is saying we have a great problem because on the one hand, we want to say it's wrong for Russia to invade Ukraine. We want to say it's wicked and evil for men to do that to young girls in Thailand. We want to say it's, there is right and there is wrong and everyone must obey it. We all agree on that. And yet on the other hand, if there's no God, then the kid on the playground is right. And we all need to ask the question of any moral claim altogether now, says who? Who is this authority that must be obeyed? Is it just a powerful government? That doesn't make it right or wrong just because a government says it is. Who is the authority? So that's the second way it often gets explained within the secular story. But let me give you one last way that secular people often try to make sense of morality within the story. Here's the third thing. Some secular people say that science defines morality. Science defines it. And usually the way this goes is it says something like, just as human beings evolved over time, so also has our understanding of morality evolved over time, so we're getting better and better, and uh, we're, we're not as bad as our ancestors, and we're coming along, we're gradually evolving into a better species. And once again, this fits perfectly well logically speaking, within the secular story. If there's no God or God's absent and just all evolutionary forces, then even morality is evolving. It makes sense within that story. Yet once again, I would say upon a little bit of reflection, nobody actually believes this or lives like this. Because here's the thing. If right and wrong are something that are always evolving, then it follows that we have a better understanding of morality than our forefathers did right? To be consistent then, we shouldn't really be condemning our forefathers for things like the African slave trade or even the residential schools. Maybe we could say something like, they just weren't evolved far enough yet. For them, maybe it wasn't right and wrong yet. They were growing in their understanding. They were making mistakes, but we wouldn't want to condemn it as evil. That would be the consistent answer, and yet nobody does that. We don't just judge other cultures. We judge across time, When ancient cultures sacrificed their children in the fires, we don't look back and just go, oh, that was too bad they did that. They just hadn't evolved far enough and they were mistaken, but we're not going to judge them. We don't do that. We say that is one of the greatest evils in the history of the human race is sacrificing children into the fires. 
Yet even more disturbing, though, if you think about this a bit more, if morality is always evolving, then where are we on this evolutionary scale? What if we're only at 10% moral? So we're more moral than our forefathers were, but the assumption, of course, right now is we've arrived at this moment. But, oh, we sure thought, you know, if you're younger, you think, well, my parents' generation didn't get it. And their, their parents thought, well, well, their parents' generation didn't get it. Well, when did we get it? Is it now? Is this the moment? Have we all arrived? That's probably not the case. Let's say the world is here for another 5,000 years. Right now, all the things that you believe are right and wrong. What if those are just part of the evolutionary scale and this idea that, you know, we should take care of the elderly, we should care for people with disabilities, it's a core part of our morality here in our society. You know, what if 1,000 years from now they look back and they condemn our society saying, you were wrong to do that, you overpopulated the earth, you should have gotten rid of anyone who is a drain on society. What if that's the accepted moral norm 1,000 years from now? And yet you won't accept it, will you? You're sitting there just going, no, that's ridiculous. Is it? I mean, if we're always evolving and if morality changes over time, maybe everything that you believe right now that you're so passionate about it's something that just in a 1,000 years or even 500 or 50 years from now, people are going to look back and say, those guys were idiots back then. They didn't have a clue. But we do not, again, we do not live like this. We all believe there are standards. But it, this is probably the biggest problem with this whole idea. If we're just evolving, it assumes that there's a standard, right? That we're evolving up towards. It also assumes we're getting better. That's a big assumption. But is there really a standard? If there's no God or God is absent from the universe, then there is no standard. There's no ultimate standard of good. So there is no evolving and getting better and better. There's just, let's figure something out this generation. Let's figure something out this generation. So to wrap it up then, science is amazing. We never put down science. It's done amazing things for us. But science has to have its place. Science cannot tell us what is right and what is wrong. Science cannot tell us if it was right or wrong to enslave African peoples. Science cannot tell us if Russia should invade Ukraine or not. Science cannot tell us if we are right as a society to redefine marriage to include same-sex couples. Science cannot speak to these matters. They're simply not scientific issues. So, let's bring all this together now. Here's what I've been trying to say. You believe in the core of who you are, that there are such things as right, of wrong, of good, and evil, and you don't believe it's just a matter of your own personal preference and feelings. You also don't believe that it's just a matter of cultural collective understanding, as in just our cultures made up our rules and other cultures can have theirs. And you also don't believe that it's just something for our time. You believe it goes across all time. We might call this universal morality. It's universal for all people at all times in all places. I'd say each one of us, if you look at it, that's what you believe. That's what you practice. That's how you live. But I want you to see is that this deep core belief that we have as human beings simply does not fit with the secular story of the universe. Because if there's no God, or if God's absent from his universe, then we each do get to make up our own rules. Why shouldn't we? It could be based upon our own feelings because there's nothing outside of us. Or each culture can decide for itself what it wants to be right and wrong. Why can't it be? There's no one to tell otherwise. And there's an always changing standard. Who knows if our forefathers were right and wrong? This is all we can say is this is how we do it today. And yet, none of us believes this. None of us lives like this. And the proof, of course, is that secular people are always judging other people, other cultures, and other times as being immoral, as doing wrong things that we would condemn. But if there is no God, if there is no standard outside of us as human beings, then the child on the playground is right. And any time a moral claim is made within the secular story of the universe, we should res respond by asking the same story, our same question as the child, all together now, <laughs> says who? Says who? So what I'm trying to show, as with Arthur Leff, is the secular story cannot make sense of the human core, core, core belief in right and wrong and in good and in evil. So having looked at that story, 
Let's turn now to look in the second place, second half, at what I'm just going to call the Christian story of morality, the Christian story of morality. And what I want to suggest to you here, be not surprised by this, is that the Christian story makes sense of that deep feeling, not just feeling, deep belief, universal understanding that we all believe in right and wrong. It makes sense of it within the Christian story. It makes perfect sense of it, in fact, that we, it shows that we, there are some things that are truly right and wrong for all people, in all cultures, at all times, in all places. We believe that. We live like that and act like that. And I'm going to show you that the Christian story makes sense of this deep belief that you have about it. To do this, let's go back to Genesis 1 to 3. And I'm going to start broadly in Genesis chapter 1. And specifically, I want to zero in and do some good kind of Bible study work, particularly in Genesis chapter 2 when it talks about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Okay, so let's build a case. What does the Bible story say about this issue of morality? Here's where it begins. First of all, the Christian story begins by saying, God exists. First verse of the Bible begins by saying, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. There is a being outside of us as human beings who is the definition of what is good and what is evil. Second place, the Christian story says, God defines morality. He's the one who decides what is right and wrong because it is all based on who he is. It's his universe. We live in his universe. He is the definition, the standard of that which is good. So anything that goes against it is considered evil. Anything that goes against God's character is considered to be wrong. The Bible story begins this way to say that he is the only one who has the authority to define what is right and what is wrong. So this means we don't have to base right and wrong on our own personal feelings because our feelings change all the time anyways depending on what you had for dinner last night. (laughs) We don't have to base it just on culture because, man, we know some cultures can make some big mistakes in the way they think. Rather, what the Bible story is saying is there is a standard that exists outside of ourselves, above and beyond ourselves. It's not just internal to us. (coughs) Excuse me. So when the question comes, why can I not shoplift from your store? Says who? The Bible's answer is, God says. Doesn't matter what you think or what you feel or how you're going to justify it. There is a standard that stands above and beyond you in the existence of our creator who made us and therefore says who? God says and God as our creator is to be obeyed. And if a sex trafficker in Thailand tries to say to us, who says for it's wrong for me to do this? This is my culture. You keep your Canadian culture to yourself and tries to justify the actions that way. The Bible story answers and says right and wrong are not culturally defined. There are moral rules that apply across all times and all cultures. Who is this authority who must be obeyed? Your creator. That's how the Bible answers that question. So the Bible begins this way, simply that God exists And God is the one who defines what is right and wrong for us because we are created beings. Here's the third thing the Bible story says. Morality can be summed up in one good command from God. So if you want to sum up all morality, you want to think about all morality, it really can come down to one command. So let's dig in and do some Bible study here and then we'll have last two very quick points, all right? In Genesis chapter 1, we learn that God created us to be in relationship with himself, to be in relationship with each other, and with the earth that he's given to us as our home. But if we're going to enjoy all these relationships, God says there's a ways you need to live and not live. God gives Adam and Eve just one command, one command of what they're not allowed to do. They're allowed to do all kinds of things, eat from every tree in the garden, allowed to do lots, but one command they're not allowed to do. And what I want to show you is that this one command really is the command of all commands. In fact, you could argue that every command that comes after it is always a subcategory of this one command. They're all just variations on the one command. So let's see, what is this command that God gave to Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 2? Here's what it says in verse 16. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, who is the authority? He commands. He's the creator. Saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden. 
Help yourselves, have fun, it's all there for your enjoyment. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. So it's obvious, this is not unclear at all. There is one tree that you are not permitted to eat from. So now the question becomes, what's so bad about this one tree that you're not allowed to eat from it? Well, the answer is not that somehow the fruit is poisonous or something like that. It's not really about the fruit per se. It's about the command and what God is saying here. So what's so bad? Let's ponder on this. What's so bad about eating from this tree and breaking God's command for Adam and Eve? And then what's so bad about it for us today? I mean, what's the big deal? What does this even have to do with us today? Well, let's unpack it. When the original readers read this little phrase, the knowledge of good and evil, they immediately recognized it as what we call an idiom. You know what an idiom is? It's kind of a figure of speech that if it's your culture and your language, you know exactly what it means. If I say to you, it was raining cats and dogs yesterday. If you are a native English speaker, if that's your first language, you know exactly what I mean when I say that. But every time I meet someone who English is their second language, I always, I always want to hear cultural stories. What do you find difficult about coming to Canada and all that? I, they always will bring up idioms. They'll always say, I, I get the English language. It's the idioms that I have such a hard time with. Because they really make no sense in any language, do they? I mean, raining cats and dogs, where did that come from? What a bizarre thing to say. And you just got to learn what the idiom means. And you just, as a, as a non-English native speaker, you just got to be like, These people are weird, but okay, that's what it means. I I know it's pouring outside. That's what it means. You get it, right? Now, this phrase, for the original readers, when they came across this phrase, the knowledge of good and evil, it was an idiom. They knew exactly what this meant, but we don't live in Hebrew culture. We don't know what this means. And so, like those who are learning Hebrew for the first time, we have to go, okay, what does this mean? It's odd to us, but we got to just understand it. So, no one's helped me better to understand all this than a theologian named Daniel Fuller. And he shows throughout the Old Testament how this exact idiom, the exact phrasing of it, comes up throughout the Old Testament in other contexts. So you can kind of read it in other contexts and you can start to understand, oh, that's what it means as you get it. So here's what we discover about it. First of all, we discover that God possesses the knowledge of good and evil. We read later on in Genesis 3.22, these words, Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. It's the exact idiom, same phrase. So God possesses the knowledge of good and evil. Secondly, here's what's interesting. Young children do not possess the knowledge of good and evil. Deuteronomy 1.39 says this. As for your little ones and your children, who today have no knowledge of good or evil. Same idiomatic phrase. Okay, so young children don't have it. Then what's also really striking is we discover that some who are very old or near to death begin to lose it. There's an old man in 2 Samuel chapter 19 who says to King David that he's so old that he can no longer, he says, discern good and evil, same idiom, And he uses it in the sense of, I can't tell what food tastes good anymore or what doesn't anymore. That's how he uses the idiom. So somehow he's lost the knowledge of good and evil when it comes to food. What's going on here? So what is this knowledge that God has, that little children do not yet have, that presumably mature teenagers and adults have, and that some elderly people as they age and come near to death have lost What is this knowledge? Well, Daniel Fuller writes these words. Slide, please. When the original readers encountered the expression to know good and evil, they understood such knowledge to be what mature adults possess. So what do mature adults possess? They possess a maturity in which they were independent and therefore responsible for the the decisions they made. So this phrase, like raining cats and dogs, if you were to say the knowledge of good and evil, what it means is you're an independent adult in the sense that you, are, can, can, you don't need other people to help you with things. You're independent, and therefore you are 
morally responsible for all the decisions that you make. You have the power. You have the ability to live on your own. You have the ability, and therefore, you're responsible for your actions. You can't just go and say, oh, I didn't know about that. No, you're responsible because you are an independent, functioning adult. So the command then, it's not really about the fruit as if it were poisonous or something to that effect. Rather, it's a command of God saying to Adam and Eve, do not try to live independently of me. And I'm giving you this command as kind of the test case to see whether you will depend on me or not depend on me. And what he's saying is, do not think that you cannot depend on me. Do not think that you can live independently of me and as if you could figure out all of what it means to live on this planet by yourselves. If you do, you will surely die. So to paraphrase one of my seminary professors, Daryl Johnson, God in this command is really saying to Adam and Eve, Adam and Eve, you are the crown of my creation. I have given you everything to make life great for you. I've created this earth as a home for you. I've filled it with all these good things. All I'm asking is that you be you and let me be me. For you to be you means you recognize that you are a created being, that I made you, that I know best how your life will work. I will lead you to happiness. You be you, trust in me, be dependent on me. And let me be me. I'm your creator. I know how your life works best because I made you. And then the flip side, the negative would be, do not try to be your own God. You can't do it. You're a created being. You're dependent on me for everything. You don't even really know how you're wired and how life will work best. You need to depend on me and I will lead you into all happiness and joy. If you try... To be me, breaking the command that I gave you, if you try to live independently of me on the day that you eat of it, on the day you turn your back on me, you will surely die. So that's why I say there really is only one command. And all other commands are just variations of it. To say it uh, negatively, the command would be, do not try to live life apart from God or you will destroy yourselves. To put it positively, Trust that your creator knows you because he made you. Trust that he's a good creator and he will lead you into what it means to be fully human. And yet, like little children are easily deceived into thinking that their parents are always out to ruin their happiness. That's what kids do, right? Just like children are easily deceived that way, Adam and Eve were deceived into thinking that they knew better than God what would make them happy. Like little children often think they know better than their parents what is right and wrong. They're absolutely sure of it. Adam and Eve thought they would know better what it meant to be human. And like little children continually think their parents' rules are too restrictive and they're just ruining their lives with all these rules, they believed that God's commands were holding them back and they wanted to be free. But pause for just a moment. Was God's command ruining their freedom? Were they slaves and restricted? Read the story, far from it. A world made for them, a garden planted for them, all the trees they want, a relationship with one another. They've been given everything for joy and happiness. God gave them one command. And was that command ruining their freedom? Oh, no. All God's commands were good commands, and this is a good command at its heart. It's a good command like when the government commands you and says to you, you shall not cross the center line on the highway when you're doing Well, let's say 90. You don't go ever faster than that, right? You shall not cross the center line when you are doing center. Do not try to drive on the left-hand side of the highway, for on the day you do it, you shall surely die. Is that a negative command? Is that a bad command? Well, wicked government. If you said to yourself, what is with this government? They're so restrictive. I want to live life free. I don't want to be a slave to all these kind of rules. I want to, I want to feel the fullness of what it means to drive and, and to drive faster and faster. I want to cross. I want to know what it's like to drive on the left-hand side of the highway. I mean, you can, but on the day you try it, 
<clears throat> you will surely die and you'll cause problems for everyone else as well. Laws like this are good because they protect human life and they enhance our freedom. It's a great feeling to fly down the highway knowing that the drivers beside you and coming towards you are going to stay in their lanes. You get the thrill of driving. God's rules about right and wrong are never meant to ruin our lives or to stop us from having fun. Or They're all to avoid pain, suffering, and death. And yet Adam and Eve were deceived. And in their deception, they rebelled. We'll get into it much more in the weeks to come, but here's where the story goes. In Genesis 3, verse 6, we read these words. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, and here's the key phrase, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. We'll become smarter. We'll understand life. She took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he Eight. And in that action, they were saying that even though they were like little children, they were going to run away from home, so to speak, like a six-year-old, going to run away from home. We're going to do this on our own. We're not going to be slaves to this tyrannical God and his rules anymore. We're going to live how we want to live, and we're going to experience what it means to be fully human. So the Christian story morality begins with this very fact. God exists, God defines morality, and God's definition of morality could be summed up in just one command, and that one command would basically be, trust me that I'm your creator and I know what's best. And negatively, don't try to break away from me and be independent of me because you're not going to be able to do it. You're a creature. I know how life works best for you. That's where the three, first three parts come. So let's add a fourth thing now. The Christian story says this. We've all eaten from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And I don't mean that literally. I mean it metaphorically. Whenever we turn away from God, we are metaphorically, again, eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And do we not do that dozens, maybe hundreds of times every single day? Like a little boy who foolishly believes that running away from home will make him free and happy... Adam and Eve ate from that tree believing they would be free and happy because they thought God's rules were too restrictive. But like such a little boy quickly discovers the consequences of his foolishness and that he was not so wise, that he's not able to take care of himself, he cannot provide food for himself, he cannot defend himself against all the forces of nature or any other powers or animals or people, he's put himself in a terrible situation, Adam and Eve suddenly discover that they cannot live independently of God. And immediately, as we will see in a few weeks, everything starts to fall apart inwards psychologically for them, with each other, and with the planet around them. They've brought destruction upon themselves, and it's been falling apart ever since. So this is where the Christian story of morality goes. God exists. He cre- he's the one who defines it. He gave us just the one good rule that we should follow for full human life and happiness. But we've all eaten from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So the question is, what will God do? What will he do when we have so blatantly disobeyed him? Finally, the Christian story says this. We can be forgiven and restored to God. We can be forgiven and restored to God. In his goodness, God did not reject Adam and Eve, and he does not reject us. What a good and patient and loving God. In fact, the rest of the story, of the Bible story, is all about God's efforts to make a way for us to be forgiven for our rebellion against him and be restored back into relationship with him. And of course, this all comes together, the whole Christian story, in the sending of his son, Jesus Christ, into the world. That Jesus went to the cross pretty soon, coming up on Good Friday, we will remember this. He goes to the cross and there bears the punishment that we deserve for our rebellion against our creator. He takes the punishment we deserve so that we don't have to face it. And he conquers death itself so we can be raised from the dead. So all the problems that came that Adam and Eve brought into the world, Christ comes to undo them. All that Adam did to unmake the world, the second Adam, Christ comes to remake the world. And how do you receive that great gift? How do you get restored back to your creator? Very simply, let's listen to the words of Jesus in Matthew 18. 
And calling to him a child, Jesus put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. We all stand under judgment for what we've done. You'll never get into the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So what's the key? Turning and becoming like children. What does that mean? What do children do when they're doing life right? They depend on their parents. They recognize their need for help. They ask for help. They trust their parents will care for them. And Jesus is saying in this moment, you need to become like little children before God. You thought you could live independently. You haven't been able to. The call of the Christian story of morality is stop thinking you can make up your own rules. All of that inner sense of right and wrong, it should point you to you have a creator. Come before your creator and say, forgive me. Forgive me that I ever acted like a god because I'm not one. Forgive me that I ever tried to live independently from you and make up my own rules. I return to you now. I ask that you would forgive me of my sins and rescue me from death itself. And the good news of the story is when you do that, God promises to forgive you and to restore you. So there you have it. We all believe there's such thing as right and wrong. We all believe it's universal. It applies to all people at all times and all cultures and at all places. And what I've suggested to you today is that the secular story cannot make sense of that deep core sense that you know you believe that there is such thing as right and wrong and it's not just personal preference, it's not culturally defined, and it's not something that just evolves over time. That's not really what you believe if you look down into your heart. And so therefore, the secular story cannot make sense of something that is at the very core of what it means to be human. The Christian story, on the other hand, makes perfect sense of that makes perfect sense that you would say, no, there's standards above and beyond all people. And if there's a standard above and beyond all people, that means there's a standard giver. If there's laws above all people, there's a law giver. And the Bible's story makes perfect sense of this saying, there is a God who created you, who made you to know him, to be in relationship with him. And though you have broken his laws, he has made a way through his son, Jesus Christ, to forgive you, and to restore you back to himself. Let's pray together. Father, we come before you right now and we bow before you, saying you are our creator. You alone are God. Forgive us that any of us, forgive us when we have acted as if we are little mini-gods, where we define our own lives, we define what is right and wrong. Forgive us where we've acted like that and lived like that. Thank you that you sent your son into this world to forgive us of our sins, to restore us back into relationship with you. We praise you for your, for your mercy, for your love, that you did not turn your back on us when we were foolish, when we are deceived, and when we are rebellious. We thank you and praise you for your love toward us in Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. If you were encouraged by today's message, be sure to rate us and hit subscribe wherever you get your podcast. To experience other talks, videos, and gatherings, visit us at centralbaptistchurch.ca. Thanks for listening to the Central Baptist Podcast.